Welcome to the Pivot Fund Pod, where we hold conversations that disrupt journalism and philanthropy. My name is Zuri Berry, and what follows is a previously recorded conversation on Black media ownership. And not just who owns Black media, but what it means to have culturally competent Black media. This conversation is hosted by the founder of the Pivot Fund and its chief executive officer, Tracy Powell, as well as Kamisha Lowry, a fellow at the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Tracy kicks off this conversation and introduces our guest. Welcome, everybody. I'm Tracy Powell, CEO of the Pivot Fund. I'm joined by my co-host extraordinaire, Kamisha Lowry, from the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. And we are really excited about tonight's conversation about who owns Black media. The, the name is a little probably not on the nose because we'll be talking about a lot of things tonight, including not only who owns Black media, but what is culturally competent Black media? What does that mean? Um, and what are the impediments to us having competent Black media? I want to get started because we have a lot of questions and I want this to be more of a conversation than a platform to make speeches. And I'm a journalist by nature. So I want to start off by saying some of these questions might be, might sound a little difficult to answer, but this is a difficult conversation that we, that has been needed for for a while. I want to introduce our speakers. Sarah Lomax-Reese is the co-founder of URL Media. And before then, and still, she is the owner of WURD Radio in Philadelphia. So welcome, Sarah. We also have, we also have Cheryl Thompson-Morton, and she, is, she leads the Black Media Institute at CUNY. Thanks for joining us, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Hiram Eric Jackson is CEO of Real Times Media. He owns the largest circulation of Black newspapers in the country. Thank you for joining us, Hiram. Thank you. Thank you. And Joe Torres is the author of News for All the People. It is the definitive book about Black and Hispanic press. He's also with Free Press and is the co-founder of Media 2070, which advocates for reparations for Black media. And again, my co-host is Kamisha Lowry. She is the Racial Equity and Journalism Fellow at the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. So thank you all. And I'll just jump right in. So just last week, the Baltimore Sun apologized for the paper's racist history. The week before, Wesley Lowry wrote an extensive treatise on the Philadelphia Inquirer's past racism. I'll, I'll ask this to you, Sarah, and, and then hopefully Joe will be able to chime in. Can you talk about whether apologies go far enough and what immediate reparations look like? Yeah, that is the perfect question for Joe. To kick off the conversation, but I'll I'll take a, a stab at it. You know, I, I think that apologies, I think it's a first step. It's 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 a gesture. I'm a big believer in economic uh access and and reparations in the form, not just in terms of kind of, you know, words and gestures, but really putting money and resources and economic uh opportunity in the mix because to me black people it it we were the economic driver of the foundation of this country as you know enslaved people um this country you know really was built on the backs of our labor and and our efforts 
And so to me, the the reparations that have to be uh, in, you know, put in place right now cannot just be symbolic, cannot just be about apologies. It has to be about checks, writing checks and and recognizing the the deep financial disparity that has existed. We arrived here and definitely has played out in the media space. You know, and and I could kind of go on and on about the disenfranchisement of Black-owned media throughout the the centuries and how we have persevered. We have continued to, you know, exist and tell our stories and and grow and all of those things, despite the fact that we were not supported by, you know, corporate America or even the, you know, the now the, the philanthropic world. But, you know, I see shifts, I see, I see uh, things changing, but media reparations goes, has to, has to go, it has to, has to transcend rhetoric and really go to financial, financial uh, opportunities. Thank you for that. Cheryl, uh, along those same lines, you know, the Black press grew out, grew out of uh, a set of racist narratives. They we needed to provide a counter narrative. We needed to tell our own stories. Just this week, the Knight Foundation announced that it was investing $4 million in Black media. I noticed that $3.2 million of that went to a white-led media association mm. with only about 200000 filtering to just five Black legacy newspapers in the form of direct grants, at least initially. For the sake of transparency, URL Media, which Sarah co-founded, received 250000 With all of the money that Knight gives out, is this fair and equitable? Ooh, yeah, you're coming with the tough questions. <laughs> you know, I think that the, the work that the Knight Foundation is doing with, with some of those projects are part of the equation. I do think that having support for for some of these great organizations, both new and legacy, and also some of the work happening to support, you know, the digital transformation of these Black news outlets, I think is, is really important. I do think there is more work to do, specifically via philanthropy. And, you know, that's the sector we're talking about specifically in terms of funding at the moment. So I'll, I'll keep my, my comments there. But I think... Um, Oftentimes, and you know, I you know, I I lead an initiative as well, so I get I get this. We often think about from philanthropy funding things to help the black press to get up to speed, right? Oh, we need this digital transformation. Um, and in some cases that there's truth there, right? But oftentimes what we don't talk about in terms of that digital transformation process is the fact that a lot of the reasons why uh, some of Black Press is where the car is because there hasn't been investment directly to those organizations to be able to do their work, to be able to transform the digital apparatus, to be able to hire uh, some of the staff that can do those things. And so Black news publications have been working, doing more with Black. And so I think until we address that issue of direct funding, more direct funding, um, directly to Black news outlets, I think that's going to continue to be a problem. You know, I think uh, the support that has happened is good, but I think 
we need to see more direct investments to Black media, especially from an organization like Knight, who does give to for-profit entities, um, which overwhelmingly Black media are. And that is a fundamental challenge for them being able to get philanthropic dollars from a lot of other organizations. So I think there's much more work that needs to be done there, specifically in funding Black media organizations directly. Thank you so much for that answer, Cheryl. I want to go back to, to Sarah um, just briefly, and then I'll, I'll ask Hiram a question. Um, since we invoked the name, um, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about URL Media? What is it? What are the 11 news outlets that make up URL Media? And what value does this collaboration bring to Black communities? Sure, sure. So URL Media, it stands for, URL stands for Uplift, Respect, and Love. And I co-founded it with Mitra Kalita in uh, January of 2021. And we, Mitra and I met in 2019 at the Media Transformation Challenge program. And we, we really established a, a strong relationship there. And when the 2020 uh, racial justice protests started unfolding and all of the, the, the drama in, in media organizations, mainstream uh, white-led media organizations, got caught up and, and were, became very, it was very evident that they were complicit in, in a lot of the, uh, the, the racism that is, is evident in the, uh, in the world. And a lot of black reporters, a lot of people were, were really saying, you know, I don't know if this is the space for me. And so we were like, this is such a powerful moment. We really need to come together and, uh, try and come up with something that, that answers this moment. And, and so, you know, I was running Word. Mitra was, uh, had launched a, a startup called Epicenter. And I knew, we both knew that there was, there were a lot of high-performing black and brown owned media organizations that were already in existence, that were doing incredible work, that had audience, that had trust and authenticity and, you know, good products, all of that stuff but we're also under-resourced. And we thought, wow, instead of starting something from scratch and, and something brand new, what if we were able to create a network of these high-performing black and brown owned media organizations that are already doing this incredible work on the ground in local communities? What if we were to band together to kind of create this, this national BIPOC owned media network. And that's how URL was, was conceived. And right now there are 10 of us in the network that represents uh, African-American, Haitian, Latin, Latino, Native American, South Asian, immigrant communities, and, and we're growing. And so, you know, we band together to share content, to amplify each other's content. So we have greater reach and to share revenues, which again, for me, this, this financial, this economic empowerment and creating more viability for our independent media outlets is, is absolutely critical. So we're not always kind of, you know, on fumes, living on fumes or, or on our heels or on life support, but we're able to have the resources to be innovators and to, to really be proactive and, and be in growth and expansion mode as opposed to scarcity mode. And so mm -hmm. that's really what, what we're trying to operationalize and implement with URL Media. That's, that's really important. Can you tell us how much has URL Media raised 
since it started? So we have gotten, um, we have three main revenue streams, grants, recruitment. We, we developed this, this very vibrant and thriving recruitment arm, which, you know, kind of sprung up organically and, and has really taken off. And then uh, advertising and sponsorships. So we are just a year old and most of our revenue right now comes from grants and the recruitment model. 2022 is really the year that we're building the, the sales and sponsorship model in terms of, of really um, executing and, and operationalizing that. And so, you know, the bulk of our, I would say about 50, 50, 50 percent of our revenues right now are grant revenues and about 50 percent of our revenues are um, recruitment revenues. And then, you know, that was what that was 2020. <clears throat> and in 2022, we're thinking it's going to be, you know, um, the, the advertising and sponsorship is going to take on a much bigger role, hopefully about 30 percent of our overall revenue mix. And so what is that overall revenue? You don't have to do it. So, so it's about a million in term, mm-hmm. between grants and uh, recruitment. And in 2021, it was about a million. That's, that's really awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Real Times Media has kind of a similar structure. And I should say, again, in the interest of transparency, that Hiram, you belong to the LMA, LMA Collaborative, which just received the $3.2 million from Knight Foundation. Unlike URL, Real Times Media took a different tact it acquired six of the most storied Black newspapers in history, including the Atlanta Tribune, the Atlanta Daily World, and the Chicago Defender. Hiram, why did you buy all of those legacy newspapers, an industry many say is dying, instead of launching a brand new digital platform like Capital B, which just launched in Atlanta? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for um, having me. I, I would you know, offer up that a little bit differently. So we, we're, you know, uh, the Michigan Chronicle, which is one of the properties that we own, is part of the Word in Black Collaborative. Mm-hmm. And the Word in Black Collaborative is supported by L- LMA. I'm, I want to, I'm going to come back to that because I think that your question about why we acquired Black Print is, you know, it's a, it's a big question. And, you know, what we've, I got into this business by accident. Like I'm not a journalist. I'm very much a capitalist. I was doing venture capital capital before I uh, got into this business. Uh, so everything to me has to, you know, make money. You know, I'm a, I'm a business guy. So when we look at, you know, the opportunity came to me because the, there were several black newspapers that were, on the verge of going out of business. The Sinstack properties, which at the time were the Chicago Defender, the Michigan Chronicle, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Memphis Tri- uh, Tri-State Defender, they were owned by the Sinstack Trust. And Mr. Sinstack died in 97. So they were literally uh, going through a trust process and were gonna be liquidated. Uh, there were a group of black investors in Chicago and a group of black investors in Detroit that were competing against each other. And the guys in, we, we just could not imagine these black newspapers going out of business. They had huge archives that went back to 1905. All of us had 
built our careers with the foundation of being in the black newspaper. So we all kind of worked together and said, hey, look, let's let's keep these alive. So in 2006, uh, I became the CEO and just started putting these together. From 2006 to 2018, we bought the Atlanta Tribune, the Atlanta Daily World, Who's Who in Black, and we sold the Memphis Tri-State Defender. And our goal was to go around the country and financially support many of these iconic Black brands that were going out of business because they have huge archival libraries and they just serve the need to the community. But, you know, we very quickly found out that we couldn't buy them all. And so uh, there wasn't a huge financial return, but then we just kind of fell in love with the fact that we were providing everyday Black people with vital information. So, you know, to answer your question, why did we buy into a dying business? We bought brands. We bought iconic brands. We feel like that that's a growing business. We feel like the demand for Black information, Black entertainment, Black journalism is a growing business. Um, we don't see it dying at all. We see a particular method of distribution, print dying. But in terms of monetizing the archives and providing them uh, to uh, a community of people, uh, uh, providing video content and a platform where everyday people can get the news and information they need, we, we see the demand for that going through the roof. What is dying is print. Um, and, you know, that's hard for me to say because I'm still in the print business, but we are very much on the verge of, you know, transitioning out of print into digital special events, consulting and the like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope that answers your question. It, it's, it, it does. It absolutely does. What investments have you made in these news outlets to make them more? I know you said, you know, you, brought, you bought the brands, not necessarily the printing presses, but the brands. What investments have you made in them to ensure that they remain relevant or return to relevancy to the to black community to the black communities where they're located? You know, our, our business is so non it, it's so non-traditional. Uh when you look at black newspapers, you know, you look at some papers who have five to ten thousand distribution, they're family owned, um, you know, they're they're, you know, literally in small communities, uh, you know, we just looked at it differently. We, we do 80 events a year. We, we generate a lot of revenue from our events. We generate video content from our events. Uh, we've probably put in about $10 million in the last 10 years, just digitizing our archives. Every newspaper we've ever produced since 1905 is digitized. We license the archives to movies and studios, uh, advertising agencies. Uh, there are several black movies that have come out, like uh, the movie 42. Uh, gosh, uh, uh, I think of a number of movies, but that license our archives. And so we generate a lot of revenue outside of the traditional newspaper business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also created a um, marketing, uh, a cultural marketing company that benefits from the databases that we create and uh, the relationships that we have. 
you know, one of the byproducts of doing events is that we've created these great databases. So we have a database of 500,000 African-Americans and we can bifurcate that. So I really think that because I'm not a traditional, you know, news person, a journalist, that I was able to bring kind of like some out of out of the box thinking about how you generate revenues and still maintain the integrity of reporting the the stories for black people every day. And I think that's what it's going to take for us to grow these iconic black brands. Uh, it can't be distributing 10 or 15,000 papers in your local community anymore. I think that business is what's suffering, not, um, not black news. I think black news, the demand is through the roof. That's, I think that's a really, really important point because a lot of people, I was just in a session today with the Knight Foundation and we were talking about making the business case for news. And I think you just helped to make some, to make that point or to bring that point home. Can you talk a little bit more about the revenues you have generated? You said lots of revenue. Can you quantify that for us? How much revenue have you derived from these properties that you've purchased? Well, um, Guys, I don't I don't want to break it down by property. I mean, we we bought a company that, uh, you know, Mr. Sinstack w- was just a wildly successful entrepreneur. He was selling everything you know, like body lotion and Walgreens and all that kind of. He was selling a lot of different things. And so we kind of divested ourselves from everything that wasn't related to the news media and just kind of strip the business down to uh, the actual brands. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about revenue, but let me just say this, because I, I don't, you know, I, I, I hope this doesn't offend anybody on the panel. I don't really believe in non, you know, businesses that are, I, I really believe that if you're creating a product, that people should pay for it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's tough for, black newspapers or black media to ultimately survive without commercializing the business. I think that's the ultimate way of creating revenue as opposed to receiving, you know, grants or nonprofit dollars. I support everybody and I think there's a space for that. But I think that if you're going to be in, you know, if you're in this as a business, as a, uh, as an entrepreneur, as a, you know, as a way to create wealth, I really think that ultimately you got to get to the point where you're creating a product that people will want to spend money. Uh, Sponsors will invest because they're going to get a return on their investment. And that's what we've tried to create. Now, um, we are part of the LMA uh, Word in Black platform. Uh, We've really enjoyed that. And I can talk about that a little bit more, too, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. We can we can definitely come back to that because I, I do want to hear more about that participation um, in that program since we have brought up the brought up. Um, well, we didn't bring up LMA, but we brought up the uh, association generally. I also want to come back to you on that on that question about revenue. I know you don't want to get specific, but yes or no, are you profitable? Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. We've been profitable for the last three years. And I've been at this since 2006 and we've had ebb and flows. Uh, and as I mentioned, we've invested millions in, you know, in our business. So there've been years where we had, you know, some really strong losses only because we invested in the infrastructure of our business. But 
And 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 I'm glad you asked that question because again, that that's exactly what I mean by being an, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a capitalist, is that we if we don't make money, we're not being successful. And <laughs> we're fortunate that we can serve our purpose by serving black people, by being, you know, unapologetically black and making money at the same time. So yeah, we, we've been really fortunate that, um, especially the last three or four years, we've done well. I think that's really, and a really important point because I, I don't believe that. I, I believe the general perception is that these papers aren't making money. So this is it's good to, to know that they are, or at least the ones that you own are. Um, well, I, think, I think the smaller people are making money too. They're just not making a lot of money. That, gotcha. You know, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's really good information. Sarah, um, you know, your family owns one of the, the very few Black-owned radio stations in the country. Sure, sure. So we're one of the few Black talk radio stations in the country. There, there are a number, there's a much broader universe of Black-owned radio stations writ large. But um, in terms of the, the Black talk format, we're one of about three. And actually, Cheryl um, did some research when she was at Lenfest that that really looked at the at the landscape and there are very, very few remaining black owned talk radio stations in uh, in the country. And so we're one of those one of one of three. There's so many impediments, just like with with all black owned businesses, you know, access to capital is is a huge, huge, huge barrier. You know, the, the, I, I've, I've said this quite a bit recently because that that black businesses, Black-owned media businesses are fragile. You know, Black wealth is fragile. And so, you know, we, we, um, we don't have the, the runway that a lot of other businesses have. We don't have the luxury of failing. And then, you know, somebody's going to pick up and, and invest in us again just because, you know, we're, um, you know, they believe in us. We are like one and done. And, you know, the, 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 the gift that I was given um, with with WURD, which is the the radio station that that my family owns, is that my father had the wherewithal to buy WURD, like you know straight out, you know, with no debt, no you know no financing. So we we have not had debt service over our our lifetime, and I'm I'm glad that that Hiram was saying that they've been you know wildly um, profitable. We really word struggled mightily. You know, we just became profitable in like 2020 and we've we've been in business since 2002. And, and that's not I took it over in 2010 and, and and started, you know, tweaking and shifting and making it more multimedia and doing a lot. to. And so we hit break even, you know, probably like around 2013, 2014. But it has been a struggle. It has been a struggle, a struggle, a struggle to to make a vibrant business model that's not just surviving, but is growing and is is you know really serving the needs of the community in powerful and profound ways. It's been very difficult, and only after 2020, when you know the racial justice protests and everybody was like, "Oh wait, snap! We need to we need to actually." support black businesses and black media that there was a, a a bit of a shift now it's not it's not like smooth sailing i'm starting to feel in 2022 a retrenchment i'm starting to feel 
like all of that energy and momentum that that we saw in 2020 with all of these pledges that, you know, Black media matters, Black lives matter, you know, Black institutions matter. I'm starting to feel a, a chilling effect, a cooling down of all of that focus on DEI and that that momentum. And it's concerning. It's deeply concerning because, again, going back to my original uh, point is like Black wealth, Black profit is fragile. You know, you only need one bad year or, or a few bad months and you are like, you know, you're in a very scary place. And so I just really and, and you cannot take your foot off the gas. That's, that's what I've learned in the first two months of 2022. Like, oh, snap, I've got to like I got to like be all in all the time because there's there's no for black people, for black media, for black businesses, there's no coasting. There's no like like getting the the wind beneath your sails and you just are like good. You can like 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 just like, you know, make it, you know, like I've paid my dues. I've, I've done the hard work and now I'm good. Nope. It, it's a slippery slope and, and I'm, I'm gonna stop right there <laughs> okay thank you for that um you know cheryl you know sarah talked about some of the research that you did when you were at landfest specifically about black radio can you talk talk more about some of the policy and funding impediments that legacy newspapers or legacy black media um face um, and then I had a follow-up question about technology. Sure. I think, you know, as we think about some of the impediments that I'm seeing for Black media currently in the sector, it, it's really focused on visibility and, and revenue generation. Um, and I, I'm very, very happy to hear, um, you know, World Times Media word uh, speaking about uh, their ability to generate revenue and, you know, be profitable. And I think we we saw an increase in spending in these media publications, to Sarah's point, post uh, the racial reckoning that occurred um, post-George Floyd. And, you know, there's, there's the constant fear, especially with some of the pushback that has been happening in American society about, like, are those promises that were made going to come true? Are they going to be retracted? And things like that. I mean, I think as we look at policy uh, in the current day, a lot of the policy that we see that is impacting Black media, I think actually happens in the broadcast space. So, you know, Sarah may be able to speak to that more. But even as we look at the minority tax credit, which um, allowed uh, people to sell their broadcast licenses to minority groups, women, people of color, et cetera, you know, that was repealed in the 90s. And we see the contraction of people of color owning broadcast licenses as a result as kind of the conglomerates uh, take over radio, most especially, um, but TV as well, and own a majority of, of uh, those stations. So, uh, that is definitely a challenge, and I think it's a challenge specifically for Black news stations, um, maybe a little less so as we talk about some of the other formats. So <laughs> I see that as, as a challenge, and I know folks like Nabob 
um, have been doing a lot of work to try to advocate for that to be changed. Tell us what uh, tell us what NABOB is for those of us who don't know. Oh yeah, NABOB is the National Association of Black Owned Broadcasters. Um, and so I know they've been doing a lot of work in that space as well. And so, but I think, you know, it's, it's something that we saw when it was repealed that black ownership and ownership of people of color and other minorities in general declined in the sector. So, Mm -hmm. um, so that's just one example there. Well, I see that Joseph Torres has joined us as a speaker. I'm so happy that this worked out. Yeah, it worked. Joseph finally got it to work. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Joseph, can you talk a little bit about the impediment that Black media faced? And and while you're at it, you can talk a little bit about the reparations piece, because you're an expert on that topic as well. So um, so the impediments, you know, is a, I mean, we can go a lot of ways with it. You know, the idea that we talk about Media 2070, which is a project that Free Press, uh, the project of Free Press it was created by the Black staff at Free Press that's calling for media reparations for the Black community. And what we're, um, what we're trying to address is that the media system is a system just like any other system that was created in our country. It wasn't meant to help or serve the Black community, Black folks, right? It was, it was made to uphold white racial hierarchies. So, so from the very beginning, uh, the role of newspapers that went on to broadcasting was to uphold white, white racial hierarchies, but also very much involved in racial terrorism, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so that's why you see all these apologies. I heard in the beginning of Baltimore Sun, um, you know, we've had papers that were involved, a paper of, of involved in the overthrow of the local multiracial government in North Carolina. So we've had all kinds of racial violence that newspapers have perpetuated. And we've had the gut, and that's, and newspapers working with the state to destroy the black press too, at the same time, you know, literally, mm-hmm destroying presses. And then we had the federal government, uh, uh, challenge, uh, justice department, World one trying, uh, arresting black publishers and editors and, and, and putting out an investigative report about the threat of the black press to basically white racial hierarchies. Right. And so what well, this, of course, the broadcast industry begins, right. In 1927, it was beginning to, uh, when, uh, the, the, the Federal Radio Commission began to to regulate radio, then the FCC in, in, in 34, it serves the same political purpose, right? To uphold white racial hierarchies. And that means the exclusion, right? Of, of black uh, broadcast owners. And all, all the broadcast stations went to white owners that accumulated wealth that became the first television owners, so forth and so on, right? And, and, and so we have this history of exclusion and we have a consolidated, uh, that was intentional. And meanwhile, we had a lot of broadcasters involved in, in, um, in upholding white racial hierarchies and racial terrorism. We had like white citizen councils who, who broadcast their programs on Southern on stations uh, that they produced out of Washington and broadcast a radio television program um, that broadcasters across the country picked up. The number is, there's an uncertainty about the number how many you picked up, but this is the impediment. The impediment is that when we have policies and then, you know, policies now, to try to solve this problem, who is it trying to solve it for? Right? Because the reason, the reason th- uh, this system exists because it's working the way it was designed, right? It, mm. And so we, we have narratives that have been weaponized in order to further a political goal. And if we're going to be a so-called multiracial democracy, right? 
if that was to achieve, how are we going to do it without ch challenging narratives? And how are we going to challenge narratives without challenging the structure, right? The structure has to change and the system has to change. And this is, this is the fight. This is the fight with uh, Media 2070 is working on. So. Thank With you so much. Yeah. This is why we need this is why we needed your voice tonight, Joan. I'm so glad that we figured this out and that you were able you're able to to speak on speak on this. And you know, we talked you talked about the historical impediments to black media ownership. Sarah has talked about the funding impediments and, and, and so has Cheryl. Can you talk about what's happening on the on the policy landscape and political landscape now to help and hinder? or um, the amplification of Black voices? Uh, first of all, when it comes to broadcasting, how do we reckon? Like, does the reckoning happen in print, right? What is the reckoning that needs to happen in broadcasting? And what is the role of the FCC and in, in federal policies, for example, with broadcasters? And how do we uh, start to undo, you know, re reconciliation is one thing that was, what does repair look like? And one of the aspects of repair has to be that these systems can no longer hurt the community. Right. We have to. Uh, so that means we have to uh, imagine a dream of a new media system that's not a consolidated one while trying to find the funding mechanisms to create a, um, an, a, a reparative kind of fund. Right. That will create an abundance of black media platforms. Right. That whether they're uh, 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 ISPs to, uh, you know, journalists to media makers of, of colors of also anyone, anyone that's involved in the creation of narrative. Right. And so we have to fund this and there's money out there. Right? These, these folks are making a lot of money using the public airwaves. Right. And digging up our streets to lay down the wire so we can have broadband. So there's money being made. That's not that's and, and these companies are continuing to do harm. And then when it comes to the print part part, there is a um, in Washington, there's more and more support for the federal government to get involved in funding journalism. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, the, but the question is, who are they going to fund? Right. And that's the part where we have to make our voices heard, because otherwise that money is going to go to the same old legacy groups that have harmed our communities. And very, and, you know, we're going to be and not, you know, uh, black media makers and media makers of color going to be cut out of it. So that's right. why that's why the policy fight is, is important, because it's they're setting up the new mechanism to fund journalism, maybe going forward, right? A new funding mechanism. So this is, so this, this is an opportunity us for, for to make an impact there on the, in this discussion about the future of media, while when it comes to like the regulated industries, the broadcasters and stuff like that, they, they have, it's a lot of work that needs to be done there. So I'll just stop there. Thank you so much. And I know you can't really talk about policy changes and reimagining a new information system that really serves communities of color without talking about the platforms, Facebook, Google, et cetera, et cetera. And they too are now looking at regulation. If I could say about, one th about that, Tracy, is like, you're right. You know, when we say media, we mean it all, right? Because uh, we had a research done for us that showed like the public, when the public things of the media, they don't really separate out uh, Facebook from the New York Times and so forth. They see it all as media. And that's, it, it's a, you know, it's news information platforms, right? So it's an information platform for, for lack of a better word. So it all counts, you know, it all count and they, and they shape narrative and they shape and they cause harm. So I that's, that's what I say about Facebook. Can I, can I just piggyback oh. on something that Joe said? Yeah, of course. 
about the uh, the broadcast um, the the broadcast industry because I think what we need to really understand is that there are huge conglomerates who own the the radio airwaves in particular, and there's just a handful of them. And the 1996 Telecommunications Act was what really kind of changed the landscape forever in terms of radio ownership. And it really cut out a lot of black owned uh, radio, you know, radio broadcasters because uh, it consolidated ownership in, in, in markets and allowed for, you know, um, big corporate interests to, to own and dominate in specific markets. And, and, and so you know, when we think about the FCC and we think about the, the broadcast industry, there are like humongous corporate interests that are controlling everything pretty much that we're hearing um, outside of like, you know, these these new platforms and, and the podcast world and, and those things. But even those are getting gobbled up by massive organizations. So, you know, the, the, the there are lobbyists who are trying to control the policy of regulates and who gets access and who gets those tax credits and all of that stuff in the in the broadcast world and it's the same players it's the same you know groups of people who have the resources have the power who are who are dominating and controlling the 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 broadcast airwaves as as um you know other big corporate interests and that's where the the systemic racism penetrates the media particularly in the broadcast uh, sector mm. Mm. Thank you so much for that addition, Sarah. My time is coming up to to a close, but I do have a, a couple more questions that I really want to get in here before we turn it over to Kamisha. The first one goes to Hiram, and here is where you can mention some some um, a few tidbits about the local media association. But you know, we we've been talking about impediments to ownership, um, especially in terms of radio and TV. Can you talk to us about, you know, one of the primary criticisms about Black legacy newspapers is that they no longer produce critical information for Black people and that they aren't meeting Black consumers where they are. And you talked about Black consumers earlier. What are the primary challenges for Real Times Media in serving its readers? Wow. Um, you know, we're we're still a very small organization and... Most of our newspaper operations are, you know, obviously local focused. Chicago, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Detroit. These are small operations that are focused on uh, serving a local community. Uh, so our, our biggest challenge is our business model in those local communities. I mean, we still print in Detroit and Pittsburgh. And I would say that's our biggest challenge is transitioning from a local print business model to, to you know, away from print. So I think that's one of the things. The second thing, though, is really the biggest issue, I think, with legacy print operations is that when you're trying to transition into something other than print, whether it be digital or special events or all of the above, it's trying to train and 
you know, the staff and build a digital culture. I mean, that's virtually impossible. You know, I said that we were profitable, but for the first 10 years, 15 years, we struggled like crazy trying to find a way to take our existing staff and build a new culture. And we, we very quickly found out that that just wasn't possible. You can't take people who have been in, in a print environment for 25, 30 years and then say, okay, now we're gonna, you know, focus on social media and stuff like that. So we learned a lot of really tough lessons. And so I think the the biggest advantage we have as Real Times Media is I have properties in 15 cities. Most local black newspapers are in that particular city that they're operating in. And we were able to take the best practices and really consolidate uh, the 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 assets of these local enterprises and develop a national strategy. And most local black newspapers don't have the ability to do that. So that was one of the things that we were able to take advantage of. But this other point about not being able to, I think I think the way you phrased it was not meeting people where they are. Uh, we started really making some investments in our digital properties and the special events. And we lost a ton of money. We did not know what we were doing. And it took mm-hmm. a while before we figured that out. And I think that's where we were just, we were fortunate to be able to have that capital to figure it out where most, you know, operations, unfortunately, don't have that luxury. So, yeah, thank you for that. That's yeah. um, yeah, very insightful. Thank you. So my last question is kind of around Robin for everybody. One of the reasons we decided to host tonight's event is because of a recent story the Pivot Fund broke about the Root.com. Once a powerful voice and source for Black people in America, the Root has recently turned over 100 percent of its staff, including powerful voices like Michael Harriet and Panama Jackson, co-founder of Very Smart Brothers. It's not lost on us that these losses occurred under new new ownership and current CEO Jim Spanfeller. Also in the interest of transparency, we invited the Root to participate in tonight's event, but they did not respond to any of our requests. So I asked this question. Does culturally competent Black news media mean that it has to be Black-owned? And Cheryl, I start with you. I mean, I can give you what I, the conclusion I've come to, and a lot of it has come from the work that I've been doing at the Black Media Initiative over this past year, and also from uh, a lot of inspiration from Sarah. So I'm very excited to to hear her response here. So when we started the Black Media Initiative, one of the things we asked like 20 Black media leaders that we had the privilege of speaking to was, how would you define Black media? And this topic about Black-targeted media versus Black-owned media was uh, a common refrain. And, you know, and the Black publishers really spoke about the fact that, you know, from their perspective, Black media is really about Black ownership. And I think that, you know, as we look at, you know, kind of this larger landscape of Black media, Black targeted media, Black owned media, 
media is just targeted at Black folks, whether it's Black-owned or not, you know, you can see oftentimes a difference in intention and how the work is carried out. And it's not because the journalists are any less capable. It's not because the the passion and the zeal isn't there. Um, It's because often the, the priority can be, is like, you know, making money and that can be at the expense of serving the community. You know, I think Hiram's point about the fact that we can do both is really important, but we see oftentimes with, with white controlled black news outlets that it becomes so much about um, generating revenue. Um, And we know how complicated, especially um, with digital advertising, it is to talk about black issues and still be able to be monetized. Like, uh, you know, Google ads, uh, we're blocking words like racism. Uh, and in our research, we found that like one of four stories in Black media mentioned the word racism, right? Uh, because that is that is a part of our experience in this country. And so I think that that like, makes it very hard for white-owned or non-Black-owned media to be able to do a job as as effectively and be culturally competent. Um, and in some cases, be radical enough we're able to tell the stories that we need to um, hear and tell us the truths that we need to hear um, as a society. So I would say I think black black ownership is critical for culturally competent black newsrooms. Thank you. Uh, Hi, Mark. I'll go to you next to ask that same question. When you say black media to me, I, I, you know, I assume you're talking about black owned media. Um, there's a lot of media out there that's not black owned that focuses on the black community because, you know, we, you know, we are huge users of and viewers and, you know, uh, of black media. I, I saw a situation this week. I'll give you an example really quickly of the difference between Black-owned media and non-Black-owned. In Michigan, we have one congressional district that will possibly uh, have a give us a Black congresswoman or a man. Uh, Detroit is 85% Black, roughly. We've always had at least two Black Congress folks. This year, we will probably end up uh, with maximum one black congressperson. There is a situation where we could end up with none. On a news show over the weekend, they didn't even deal with that issue, and they talked about the district. Mm. Black media, black-owned media, well, that's the only issue. How can you have a state with 10 million people a city, the blackest city in America, with no congressperson, a black-owned media operation, that's all that matters to them, and they're going to report that. Because I'm black, you know, and live in the city, black mother, black kids, you know, we're not reporting on it. We live it every day. We live it every day. So the issues that we're reporting on whether it be food deserts or health disparities or or lack of you know mobility, all of these issues, we don't report on them. We live them every day. Uh, so I think that's a very different perspective than just listening to somebody in the in the newsroom tell you what's going on. 
you know, you feel it, you breathe it every day. So I don't know if there's any other kind of black media other than black owned media. Thank you so much. Sarah, can only black owners produce culturally competent black news and information? Mm, I mean, I, I don't know um, definitively if only uh, black people can make competent black media, but I know that we have a different level of investment. Like what Hiram was saying, you know, that, that we, we are our audience, you know, we, our, our sons are the ones who are being, you know, interrogated by the police, you know, and, and are being, you know, we, I am a black, I'm a mother of black sons who worries every time my 18 year old son, you know, leaves the house and because of, you know, just the world we live in. So, we are we 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 have a different kind of sensitivity and a different kind of investment in 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 talking about and covering the issues that uniquely impact our community. I also think that the critical piece that that has been very pivotal in 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 my work at WURD in particular is that we are creating a business that allows black people to be employed to be trained, to be groomed, to ascend, to learn the craft. And, and we have, I think that we have a much more open and patient culture because we, we are trying to, um, to, to create opportunities and, you know, hopefully careers that, that people can, and, and my goal is that Word is not just a training ground. It's not just a place where you come and you you learn and then you, you know, you quote unquote graduate to public radio or you graduate to a, a white led institution. But that that word is a place where you come, you are groomed, you can grow and you can you stay and you get, you know, you are invested in and there are, are opportunities for you to have a full and, and, you know, fulfilling career at WURD. So, you know, I, and I think that there's just a different level of investment in our people to make sure that, that they have opportunities that they probably would not get anywhere else in, in, in white led media. So, you know, I, I, I look at it also from an economic standpoint that we, we want to be a place where people feel like they can also make money, you know, like, like, you know, this, this, this is not just about, you know, like training, but it's also like, how do we create institutions that where people feel like they can be paid and paid well, and they can help to grow and build a sustainable organization that's thriving and they benefit from that thriving um, institution. Thank you for that, Sarah. Wow. Um, you, you made my uh, day, Sarah. That, that was wonderful. I appreciate yes, that. Yes. Yeah. We picked these panelists for a reason. They're powerful <laughs> people. So, Joe, you were supposed to have the first word. So I'm going to give you the last word to wrap things up for us. Same question about cultural competency. Yeah. To me, you know, like the, the question you ask, and I, um, I agree. And I agree with Sarah and uh and harem um you know i i think like you, you may have examples for instance you may say i'm just thinking off the top man you may have like 
uh, on television. He may have like when Murdoch brought the uh, start again to local television and, and created a network. He had all kind of programs that were real popular in our communities, right? He had Living Color and um, and uh, um, you know and and other programs that were were popular, but. Soon enough, when they started making that money, they shift, right? It's like the priority, like folks who tried to do, uh, who tried to serve this space, as, as Cheryl was saying, they're trying to make money. Their commitment to the community is not there. It will shift, right? It will shift. It's not long. It's often not long lasting, right? It's, it is, and, and, and it retracts. It retracts when also when there is uh, political changes too. So, and when you have, you know, the history of, uh, the black the black press is 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 an oppositional press. It's a dissident press. It's a press that's been fighting for uh, you know, um, uh, f- from the very first publication, been fighting uh, in 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 challenging racism and colonialism and and all and all all fashions of, all, all fashions of uh, anti inherited anti democratic uh, behavior in, in our society. Right. So that last that last that's that last and and what we're talking about here is really a lack of abundance, right? Because of the history of racism in, in, in our industries and in advertising and so forth and so on. And so we created, a, you know, a, 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 we have to create a, a, an, an ecosystem of abundance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there may be an institution or two who, who, who do okay for, for a second, but it's not lasting. And it's not the commitment that everyone has said here, you know, um, that uh, the opportunities are going to provide. It's, 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 it's a short-term often short-term interest just is all about the money. So I'll stop there, Tracy. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. We did record it, so we'll share it through the Pivot Fund podcast. But I just want to say for me, thank you so much for a great, great discussion. And I wanted to just say thank you to all of our panelists. We did have some questions in the, in the pending. I know one one of our younger brothers from the Black News Channel had a question I promise you I'll get an answer for the question that you have just direct message me probably should have had y'all on the as part of the panel but next time I, I would love to hear from the Black News Channel um, again thank you for everybody joining us tonight we appreciate spending this time with you and um, let's do it again check out the recording um, on the Pivot Fund podcast and subscribe to our newsletter good night <laughs>